Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Arthritis Voices 360, the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. I'm Kelly Conway, and I will be your co-host for this episode. I'm the co-founder of AI Arthritis, and I'm also a patient living with rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, Graves' disease, a rare skin disease called DSAP. I always joke I am the ever-changing diagnosis patient. Now they're looking at some spondlio diagnoses for me because my back and hips are not good. So I'm ever changing. I document my life living with multiple illnesses in my blog called As My Joints Turn, My Autoimmune Soap Opera. I am very excited. I'm joined today by two co-hosts that I would love to introduce you to. First, we have Rick Phillips, and Rick is a previous co-host to AI Arthritis Voices 360. Welcome back, Rick. Please tell us more about yourself. I am so delighted to be here. Rick Phillips. I live in central Indiana the uh, home of the entire NCAA men's tournament this year. I have rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, and type 1 diabetes. And I blog at radiabetes.com and would love to have anybody stop by. Excellent. Thank you, Rick. And next up, we have Heather Konjorski. Heather, please tell us more about you. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm Heather Konjorski. I am an outpatient adult psychotherapist living in and working in Indianapolis. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I've been practicing for about 10 years now. I personally don't have an autoimmune diagnosis that I'm aware of (laughs) yet, but I, my I have a mother with multiple sclerosis. My brother has ulcerative colitis and my mother-in-law has rheumatoid. And so I have a lot of experience hearing about dealing with and and helping folks with autoimmune issues. It's been a part of my life since I was very little. Wow. So you are definitely a stakeholder and we're so thrilled to have you join us at the table today to discuss some of our issues that we're going to be talking about. So today our topic is going to be depression, specifically as it relates to people living with various types of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis, and also the effects that the COVID-19 pandemic has taken on all of us. But before we dive into that, I just want to remind our listeners how our show works. A Arthritis Voices 360 expands our mission as an organization to help others like us living with AI arthritis diseases to have a voice alongside other community stakeholders as equals. So together we can solve problems that will impact education, advocacy, and research. Everything we do at our organization follows a six-step process. Step one, starting with patient peer communication to identify the most pressing needs in our community. And once we identify that topic, we put it on the table, which is this very platform, our talk show. Step three follows our episode when we ask our community members to keep the conversation going and join us in the discussion. In step four, we invite all of the patients and any other person who has a stake in the issue to weigh in. And from there, we can start to figure out who to invite to the table to join us in solving the problem. And that leads us to step five. Now, this episode is a little bit different because this is a direct extension from the work we've done over the past year with our COVID-19 and AI arthritis series. So we're here today in the process, inviting another stakeholder to the table, who is Heather, a licensed social worker, to discuss depression and how living with chronic illness during the COVID has impacted our community so we can develop more resources to help others. And I do want to remind our listeners to stay tuned because at the end, you will learn how you also can have a seat at our table. So I guess we should start with how the idea for this show came up. I wrote a blog called Not a Me Too Movement. I had decided to really, I guess, come out, as you would say, and and admit that I was dealing with depression. 
So I was documenting it. And I, I do admit, and Heather doesn't know this, Rick does know this, and some of our listeners may not know this. In addition to the pandemic and dealing with depression, I, in the course of a year, I lost my beloved dog. I lost my father and my uncle to COVID and I lost a cousin to cancer. And the last three, my family members, that was all between Thanksgiving and Christmas with my cousin dying on Christmas Eve. So there's been a lot in terms of things that have been overwhelming me in my life. And I found that when I would say to people, you know, guys, I I really, I can't, I can't commit to this. I I'm really dealing with depression and I'm really struggling right now. Everybody responded with me too. And I get it. I get it. But Rick commented on my blog and said, you know, Kelly, I think this might be a good idea for a talk show. So Rick, what made you want to reach out and say, Hey, I think we need to dive more into this. But you know, I was first treated for depression in about 1994, and I have been in continuous treatment with both medication and talk therapy since then. And I keep a fairly rigid schedule of seeing a person for talk therapy and also medication. It has just made a world of difference in my life. I certainly was in a terrible place when it started. And frankly, staying with my talk therapy and medication, I've been able to weather the COVID storm pretty well. But I also know many people in our community who are suffering from depression and who have found it to become so much more difficult during the pandemic. And I just think that We need to reaffirm to folks that, yes, this is something that happens, but if we stay with our treatment programs, and if we don't have a treatment program, if we reach out, then we can find relief. We do not have to stay where we are. Right. Excellent. And Heather, as a professional working with others, have you seen any changes or any increase in depression since the whole pandemic has begun? You know, I have been seeing clients, obviously I work with clients with all types of mental health concerns. And so ongoing depression, anxiety, obviously before the pandemic happened. And I think what we see is, yes, there is some of the things that a lot of people with depression, some of those things that we encourage them to do and that they really enjoy doing and that would boost their mood you know, going to see family, going out to dinner, getting out and being a part of the community. These were ways that we could really help people struggling with depression and anxiety, the things that we would encourage them to do. All of those things are taken off of the table during the pandemic. So we have definitely see an increase in this sense of isolation and sadness and hopelessness and helplessness so it really exacerbated, you know, the pandemic and the the circumstances and our having to quarantine and, and stay at home really exacerbated a lot of people's symptoms and struggles with depression that they already had and anxiety that they already had. The fearfulness is greatly heightened with this, you know, we can't even go outside. And some people obviously, you know, very, very fearful and are much more vulnerable to getting ill. So yes, it exacerbated, this pandemic exacerbated so many of these really intense symptoms that folks were struggling with even before this all happened. So yeah, it became very, and we would see it, and we would see a marked difference with some of our folks, much more depressed, much more anxious. Right. And and I have to admit, when all of this started happening, part of me wanted to overreact Part of me didn't know what the right level of reaction would be. Sure. And honestly, my concern this whole time was always to protect my parents. And when you said, you know, we weren't going to see our family members, that's something that I know I normally would have seen my parents more often. Sure. I put it off and to go see them, I did quarantine for two straight weeks, Mm -hmm. made sure I went nowhere. And it was always my worst fear that I would be the one bringing it to them. Exactly. Yes. And it, you know, both of my family members who died from COVID 
were exposed to it in hospital and a rehab kind of setting. So it was, they fell, they needed medical attention and this happened. So I know my cousin expressed to me, she has such guilt over not seeing her father for months and months because she was trying to keep him safe. And with a young child, she really couldn't do that two weeks to be able to go see him with her child and her family and her, you know, work. There was just no way to do that. So I think there's a lot of internal guilt coming from a lot of things, which adds to the overall depression. But in doing some research for this podcast, our friends at Creaky Joints always do some great work. And and they had summarized a study that was presented at the ACR, which is the American College of Rheumatology Convergence Meeting in 2020. It was at their annual meeting that was virtual. And this was presented, one study focused on lupus patients. And it basically said that a significant number of these patients actually experienced moments of improved mental health and well-being. And I don't know, I, I can't speak for Rick, so I'll ask you what for you, but when this all sort of happened, I was feeling really good because honestly, in a lot of ways, we were coming off of winter. I had a terrible, terrible upper respiratory infection at the end of January, beginning of February, where I was home out of work for two weeks, high fever, very similar symptoms to COVID, but COVID wasn't being talked about really in this country at that point. So again, I was treated for probably bronchitis. So I hadn't been going anywhere. And in the winter during flu season, I don't go a lot of places anyway, because I do get sick. So I think some of us in the patient community were saying, wow, (laughs) you know, everybody has to act like us. They could learn how, like, this is how we get our groceries in. And, and this is what we do when we go out. And a lot of people with poor immune systems tend to go out with the hand sanitizer and the face masks. So that in some ways was very similar. And some people were saying, you know, they felt good because there was no pressure to go out and that was actually good for their well-being. Other things that they said, people who actually did get sick with COVID and survived, it was almost a relief. And that was something that I really didn't have fear that it would kill me. I did have fear it would make me very sick. I did have fear that I could spread it to others. So that was sort of my fear with this. But they were finding that the stress affected disease activity and other symptoms. And I think that's something else that a lot of patients have been talking about in our AR arthritis COVID group, just the stress of, you know, trying to be careful. And some people, you know, who were really so concerned about the disease and still having to go to work and not being able to stay home, that level of stress, I think, on top of dealing with a chronic illness, dealing with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or any disease that you can have. I think that really added to levels of stress that people hadn't experienced before. So Rick, did you, what were your feelings when this whole pandemic started? Were you feeling like, Hey, I got this or Hey, you know, did you sort of have the roller coaster of emotions? Like some of these patients reported. Yeah. You know, I really didn't. I did not really have a roller coaster of emotion. For one thing, I had back surgery two days before the hospital got their first COVID case and got released home and was told, go home, stay home, get in bed, don't get up. So for the first 30 days, it was, well, I couldn't go anywhere anyway. So that was okay. Now, once that was over, then we had to adapt to this new life. And it just was so difficult. My wife and I like to go to movies. And, you know, there were no more movies. We like to dine out. Well, there were really, you just couldn't, with an autoimmune disease, dine out. We couldn't have our grandchildren last summer. So as it wore on, it became more and more and more difficult. We had to seek out ways to maintain ourselves. And I did that with exercise. I was able to get out of my bicycle last year and ride a fair amount. Starting in December, I started walking outside and we've done that a fair amount. And really because of that, I was able to sustain my mental health through this COVID period. But had I not had those two outlets, in particular, the bicycle and the walking, 
I don't really know where I would have ended up. Right. So this is something else to think about when you talk about you had these outlets that you had already built in. Something that I've always felt got me through was work. I work with kids and that changed. That changed to suddenly I'm Zooming with kids and it's not what I was used to. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have materials because I do a lot of game kind of activities. So it was such a change for me. But what I found, and I I think this is something that we, we need to talk about a little bit more. What I found was when I finally admitted to people, and it was around this time last year, we did a big Zoom with a bunch of my friends. And I said, you know, I've been diagnosed with depression. People were like, you, you have that? Again, I think people don't really, I don't walk around saying all the time I'm depressed and I don't act sad all the time. But internally, I don't ever want to get out of bed. I want to stay in bed all the time. Part of the pressure, I love going to movies. I love going out to restaurants. But for me, it was kind of a relief not to have to do that. So that was initially in the beginning. But Heather, can we talk about like, what are some of the signs and symptoms of depression? Because again, I said to a friend of mine who was saying, you know, she's just so tired all the time and you know, she's so sick of all this stuff going on. And I said, well, you're probably dealing with a little bit of depression from the situation, from the whole COVID-19 and the stress. So can we talk a little bit about the signs of depression and how you might not know that somebody is depressed? Right. I mean, I think people are very skilled at their outer personality and their bubbliness. You know, people might not have any idea internally what is going on with them. People can be very skilled at putting on a brave face, right? So we have to pay attention to some of the common symptoms of depression when we're talking about, are you no longer engaging in the things that brought you joy before? Are you just not returning people's phone calls? Are you not, are you not going out? Are you not, and obviously, you know, things were very different during the pandemic as far as going out, but those common signs are you not interested in the things that used to bring you joy? Is your appetite diminished? And it can also be, are you feeding those emotions? Has your appetite either gone from one extreme to the other? So we, we may have no appetite and start losing weight and becoming feeling very weak and, and sickly. Or we just are eating much more than we need to because it gives us that temporary boost, just that temporary high the fatigue, just not having a desire to engage with other people, not taking care of yourself, if not getting up and just getting a shower, brushing your teeth, you know, going outside, some of the more obvious things. So your appetite, fatigue, not being engaged in the way with things that bring you joy, just having a sense of hopelessness, you just can't look forward to things or just feeling like, what's the point? So those are those things that when we sense that that's going on internally with us, or when we notice that in a friend or loved one, these are some things we really have to pay attention to. And it it was particularly challenging during the pandemic to remedy some of these situations when we can't be with loved ones and we can't go to the gym, for example, something maybe that would boost your mood. Well, that's not an option, you know? And so, you know, some of these things that would help are taken off the table and that's what was really challenging. Well, I think another issue that is present with some folks is anger. And I know that as I became more and more depressed, I became more angry. I don't think of myself as an angry person, but I had become an angry person. It's really the change of self that can really signal depression. You know, if you like to do something and you suddenly really can't bring yourself to do it, that could be a sign that you are facing depression. Again, in my case, it was anger. I don't like to be angry, and and yet I was more angry. And I think that that really points out some differences between males and females. I think males are more typically reluctant to say that they have a mental health issue, a depression issue. And I hope that if males are listening to our podcast, 
that they understand that uh, this is not a sign of weakness. You can live beyond it, and it's important to get help. And and trust me, it is so much better on the other side. If you think that you may have depression, seek out help. Your life will be better. And I know I know sometimes that's difficult to to think about, but the truth is your life your life can be so much better. And Rick, I think that's a really important thing to state because what I'm finding in just talking to friends, even talking to family members, people are embarrassed to be depressed. My mom, God love her, keeps referring to herself as having a pity party. Like, mom, what you're going through isn't a pity party. You lost your husband of 52 years and your brother who was your best friend. And we lost my cousin on Christmas Eve, which was just heartbreaking. And she didn't die from COVID, but still it was kind of like, just not how can one more thing happen? I've said to her oftentimes, I'm like, why don't you talk to somebody? But I think for a lot of people that is seen as a weakness. I think that's males probably a little bit more, but I do think it's, it's a problem for both gender and for maybe economic status. Some people may not be able to afford therapy. I think there's some barriers that are internally present, especially, you know, with the pandemic, some people couldn't find an open practice. Now I had mentioned to you guys before we started recording, I had been seeing a therapist for quite a while. I recognized some symptoms in myself before the pandemic, just that my health was getting worse for me. It's like my identity was stripped away. I don't recognize the person that I am now compared to the person that I thought I was going to be. So there's been some complex things I've been dealing with for years But then the pandemic hit and I was able to transition smoothly over to seeing her, you know, virtually, which was great. And then sadly, she ended up with very serious COVID and she's no longer treating patients. And I remember she reached out to me to tell me she was in the hospital. I checked in on her once or twice after that. And then she just she's no longer listed on the practice website. She's recovering but I'm having a heck of a time finding a new therapist. And I think that's partly because a lot of people are taking advantage of the so-called teledoc, the virtual therapy, which is a blessing. But I think Right. right now my barrier is finding someone who's free on Friday. I contacted another practice and I said, Hey, you know, I, I used to come to you. I was seeing somebody this happened and they literally said, can you call us back next week? We don't have anybody right now. Yeah. We might have somebody next week, which again, I was at an extremely low point in my thirties, right when I first got sick. And I remember breaking down hysterically when something similar happened, we have to cancel your appointment. Cause I thought for sure, I'll walk into this appointment and this person will say, yes, I can make you better. And when I didn't get that, I fell apart. I didn't Mm -hmm. fall apart this time because I think I'm seeing things from a different angle at this point. But I think there's definitely the barriers, the stigma. What is my family going to think? What is my neighbor going to think? It's heartbreaking because honestly, I think that just adds on to the depression. Heather, do you find that people have a hard time admitting that they need help? Do people like I honestly, I didn't admit to people for many years I was in therapy. Yeah, absolutely. This is very common. I have this conversation many, many times with many, many different clients that will come in and say, I just can't believe I'm here. You know, I don't want anyone to know about this. I I hear it all the time. There is still this stigma that's attached to getting therapy. And it's such a shame because it keeps people from being able to, like Rick just said, get to the other side. There is another side. You do not have to live in misery. And to be able to be more open about the fact that you're reaching out for help would be very beneficial. I mean, I think we're always just going to continue to be focusing on getting rid of the stigma. And what I tell my clients when they come in, you know, you have no idea how many people are coming in here and saying the same thing. So all of these people that you think have it all together and that don't need therapy because they're stronger or they just, you know, they, they just don't need that. They don't, they're, they're not weak. Those are people that are coming in here too. And look, I'm always congratulating people for having the courage to come in and the courage to do the work and the courage to look at their issues. And I, I just, I think it's always important to let people know that 
There's a lot of people that you think have it together, but either they are coming in for therapy and they think, you know, that there's something wrong with them and they're, they're coming and they don't want anyone to know, or they're suffering in silence and really should be coming to therapy because you can get to the other side. You can feel better. And it is courageous to come in and start looking at your issues. And I always emphasize that this is very much the opposite of weakness. It is to stay in a miserable state of mind and to just allow yourself to stay there. I mean, if we, I don't really want to say that anybody is weak or strong, but it takes bravery to come in and say, I am at a point right now where I need some assistance because we all do. We're all human beings, whether you want to admit it or not, we need assistance and we need help at different points in our lives. We're not robots. So to be able to be brave enough to come in and say, I am asking for some assistance right now. And I am willing to look at the hard stuff that's going on inside my head and in my life. And I'm willing to start to look at this stuff and talk through things that are really difficult and talk about things that maybe I've never talked about before. I'm willing to be brave enough to come in and do that. That is strength. That is the opposite of weakness to come in for therapy and start to look at who you are and what can help you to be better. That takes courage. So that is strength. That is very much the opposite of the weakness that somebody might perceive for coming to ask for help from a therapist. You know, when I first sought out help, there were two things about it. The first thing is I had to get permission. I had to get permission from my wife. Now, I know now that I did not need that permission, but I felt in my heart that before I could begin therapy, I had to tell her and I had to hear her say, it's okay if you do that. I mean, what a crazy thing. And from her standpoint, she said, it's almost like having another person in our marriage. There's you and me and somebody you go see. As a couple, we had to work through that. But then the second part was when I got to the therapist, I sat down in the chair. I had summoned everything I had to get there. I sat down in the chair and she said, what brings you here? And I said, I don't know. And she said, great, we'll start with that. Or we can say that we've accomplished everything that, that you want to accomplish and we can end therapy. And I said, well, I don't think I've really accomplished everything I set out to. And she said, well, then we can start from the beginning. And, you know, we started from the beginning and 23 years later, I still find comfort in therapy and using the medication. I've done talk therapy, you know, for, I guess, 18 years off and on. For me, what I found was the best part of it was when I would tell people friends or family, what was going on, you know, some would cry, some would get defensive, some would try and talk me out of the way I was feeling. And I realized that I needed to talk to somebody who did not mm. love me. Right. Exactly. I needed right. to talk to somebody yes. who they were not emotionally invested in me right. because I couldn't take the tears from other people. I couldn't take the, oh, come on, you know, it's not that bad. Yeah. I needed somebody to just listen. And one of my first therapists, I still miss her to this day. She ended up moving on and moving to a different area, but she really, she listened to me. And that was what was lacking. Cause I, I felt like I couldn't tell anybody. I was afraid at certain points in my life to tell people I felt good because the next time I saw them, if I didn't, well, the last time we saw you, you felt good. So mm -hmm. I stopped telling people I felt good. And I'm like, all right, but now I'm at the point coming through, you know, this pandemic and having tremendous loss between losing my dad and my dog, who just both meant the world to me and my uncle and my cousin as well. But I think my dad and my dog, they, they were my, I miss my dad's advice. You know, I miss snuggling with that dog that I just adored. And for when she died, she was chronically ill, had way more medical issues than I did. And it was a life switch. I went from being a caretaker to being, oh, I, I don't have to do that anymore. And I think that's something else that I think we need to mention because Ricky talked about Cheryl and caretakers also go through some serious depression. 
And I think that's something definitely like, even now I'm an educator, I work in schools, teachers are struggling this year. And I think that's why I feel at a point where I'm feeling pretty low about things. School, work, the kids was always the high point of my day. They got me through. I loved it. I feel good at what I do. And now it's just like putting my foot down and I don't know where it's going to land from day to day because either Zoom won't work or something freezes or the kids' microphone's not working. And it's, it's so much that you can just lose yourself. So I think the caretaker aspect, speaking to somebody who's not emotionally invested in you, the exploring the talk therapy and medication treatments. Heather, do you have any other suggestions or any other sort of tools that you found have been very successful with people battling depression? You know, I think at the heart of dealing with depression, anxiety in particular, well, any kind of mental health issues, but, you know, our our big two are the depression and anxiety, and they often go hand in hand. Some of the most important tools I feel like that everybody can engage in and that the root, we we want self-care. So self-care is so key. And it is also something that people are not necessarily very good at. And sometimes I I had a client recently when I was talking to her about, let's talk about your self-care. And she had no idea what I was talking about. And she says, I don't even know how to do that. What you know, take care of myself. I mean, she's constantly taking care of other people, her children, her husband, her parents. I mean, truly in her 30 plus years, she didn't have any concept of what self-care was. And it's absolutely critical, but sometimes we have to learn to do that. So taking care of ourselves and making our own mental well-being, physical well-being, our first priority, that has to be something that we focus on. I believe very strongly in part of your self-care is really getting to know who you are. And sometimes that's the last thing people want to do on the whole planet is get to know themselves. But again, this is critical. So, you know, getting to know who you are, starting to journal, starting to write about just when you're somebody that is not so adept at being in touch with your feelings, this can be hard, but we need to get in touch with those feelings. So, you know, helping people to focus on writing for five minutes each day, just five minutes, just write about whatever, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're thinking, sometimes the stream of consciousness, just write, sit with yourself by yourself and write that in itself can evolve into okay, I'm going to write about this struggle I'm having with my spouse or my friend. I really emphasize wanting people to get to know themselves and really get in touch with what's going on in their head and the feelings and their emotions. So journaling, I'm a huge proponent of meditation, deep breathing, being able to sit with yourself and tolerate yourself sit and breathe. And, you know, there's all different types of meditation techniques, but self-care, getting to know yourself, journaling, meditation, exercise, whatever you're able to tolerate in the world of exercise, movement, but being able to spend time with yourself and be with yourself and be with your own thoughts and your own feelings and being comfortable with that. And that can take a lot of, that can take practice. That is sometimes, again, one of the things that people want to avoid more than anything on the planet is sitting with themselves, right? We, we have all kinds of distractions in life, but this is, is really key. And that is what I always emphasize with all of my clients. Get to know you. You must get to know you. And ideally, and this comes sometimes much later, you've got to start to like you and feel compassion for you. It is hard work if you're if it hasn't been cultivated in you from a young age. It's hard work, but you can get there and it's really it is so important. That's I, I when I first got sick, I went to a holistic practice and I live in the Philadelphia area and it was a holistic practice at Jefferson Hospital and basically they kept saying you should take our our mindfulness meditation program and I really couldn't afford it 
which again, a barrier that happens for people. But I ended up working with a woman. She was pretty disabled. She was still working full time because again, being home alone, that was the end of the world for her. Mm-hmm. And we took this class together. And what I learned from mindfulness is I was able to help control pain a little bit because I was able to push it away from the center focus and mm-hmm. push it sort of to my fingertips. I still mm-hmm. use it for that. I haven't used it for depression because when you were talking, I was sitting here going through my, I'm to the point where I don't want to hear my own thoughts that even now when I go to bed, mm-hmm. I play, I listen to audible books and I have books playing okay. that I've already heard. Okay. So because, that you can avoid. <laughs> so I don't have to have a dream or have right. a thought or something that's going to, you know, make me think about me. Okay. You know, I noticed last year, I didn't want to read anything new. I didn't want to watch anything new. It was mm-hmm. everything I'd already seen. And I read an article when I was writing about how I was feeling. And it said a lot of times you don't want to do anything new. I'm like, I am like a classic symptom here. Like, yeah, you know, so uh, in, in working through my depression, I've been blogging more. That's something that I've been trying to do weekly, which is not the norm for me, but I found that by doing that, I'm getting some stuff out. Talk, Talk therapy. I'm still in the process of finding a more regular therapist because I think that's really important. So that's my priority this week. Mm-hmm. But I think getting into meditation, I think, is something that I really need to look into doing again because I do think it's powerful and it is hard. I don't want to do it. I don't want to just stop. I know. Yeah. It's hard. It is work. hard. It's uncomfortable. I think as human beings, we are on this quest to get away from discomfort as much as we possibly can, because we want to just feel good. We, we don't want to feel bad things. We don't want to feel uncomfortable and scared. But the more that we allow ourselves to be present, and this is you know at the, the, the cornerstone of mindfulness, to be present with what is going on in this moment, in our heads, in our hearts, in our physical bodies, our sensations, what is going on right now in this present moment, and be able to truly be with it. And sometimes you're going to notice that maybe there's some really uncomfortable, upsetting thoughts. Maybe there's some really painful feelings. And we're all trying to get away from this stuff. But the goal is, to, in order to really transcend it, is to really be present with it and let it be. There is an enormous amount of power in being able to be present with all of the thoughts and all of the discomfort. The more we battle it and the more that we're in a battle in our heads to get away from parts of ourselves, the more power those negative feelings and those negative thoughts, the more they come back with a vengeance. The more we can sit and be present with everything and notice and and learn that we can actually tolerate it and we'll survive. It'll be okay. The more that we can truly transcend pain, depression, anxiety. We change the relationship we have with all of these discomforts. We're changing the relationship we have with them. We're not at battle. We don't want to be at war with them. All of these feelings and all of the discomforts and even all of our physical sensations that are challenging, this is all part of who we are. And we want to have, as strange as it may sound, we want to have a harmonious relationship and develop a harmonious relationship with all of these things, all of these parts, all of these weird thoughts that maybe we have, the sensations in our bodies, the pain in our body. So this is at the cornerstone here of this mindfulness presence and being present. I think it's also something that I use is I remember that these waves of depression, when I have them, they will end. They always have, and they always will. And I always keep that in my mind that no matter how bad it seems, I know it's going to end. Mm-hmm. And I know that because it always has ended. I've always been able to figure out a way to help it end. And just knowing that gives me peace of mind that I don't have to live here. Mm-hmm. It's a temporary place. Mm-hmm. I think something that was powerful for me was I 
had symptoms very young, wasn't officially diagnosed till I was in my thirties and all my friends were getting married and having kids. And I was trying to figure out how to button shirts and, and Mm -hmm. do my laundry, which was a building over when I was in an apartment. And so I was dealing with very few things. And I think I went from a very social person to a person who became very bitter that person, the life that I thought I was going to have ceased to exist. And I think the aha moment I got to was I started realizing that chronic illness isn't the end of the world. It's just a different way of living in the world. And I think part of the way I've coped is by doing patient advocacy, by reaching out to other patients. And I think having a platform like this where, you know, patients and, and, and therapists and family members can all listen and hear and, you know, know that there is a way out. And I think, Heather, you really eloquently stated a lot of different things that people can do. Talk therapy, medication, meditation, mindfulness, exercise. My therapist has often said to me, you know, you've got to give yourself some grace. I, yes. had, to, I had to Google that. I, I didn't know what that meant. Yeah, I truly that's the compassion. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I relate it back to the whole Catholic guilt thing. Like I genuinely thought you weren't supposed to love yourself. I thought that was a sin, but that was just I, what my 90 year old all the time. You're yeah, absolutely I, right. Yes. I, di- I didn't know these things. So again, I feel like the worst thing that I thought could happen happened basically. Did I know my father wasn't long for the world? Yes. He was 84. Yes. I knew that. I I was expecting things to happen, just not in the manner that they happened. And I think the other thing, you know, we have a lot of keyboard warriors who can be very nasty about, you know, my father didn't die from COVID or, you know, you should never put your father in that situation. You should have brought him home. Like people have said very mean things. So I've, I've had to take a step back and, and thankfully therapy has gotten me through to this point. But the one thing that I did do. And I think this is grace for the first time in like 30 years, I'm not working this summer, which a lot of people think teachers all take off in the summer. I'm not a teacher. I'm a speech therapist, but I've always worked a gazillion jobs and I'm not doing that. And I'm scared. Mm -hmm. I'm scared financially because I should work, but I just need to take care of me because I think this past year I've been taking care of everybody else. That's, that is the grace. That is the self-compassion. Yes. And that's a hard thing to learn. Now we've been talking for a while and I think we can wrap this up. We can always have more conversations later, but any final thoughts that maybe you have in terms of how we can better help our community identify that they might need some help or identify any suggestions to help people who are really feeling low and who maybe can't afford at this point to find therapy, or if you know of any resources, is there anything either of you could suggest? Well, you know, Kelly, the thing is with therapy, I believe that the resources exist in most places if we are willing to reach out to find them. I know that in the three communities I have lived, mental health services existed for people at all income levels. Mm-hmm. It, it is a matter of finding it if you need financial assistance. But in each of the communities I've lived in and worked in, those resources existed. And they were a matter of going to the mental health society, going to family services, going to a local hospital, talking to a doctor and saying, I can't afford these services do you know of a way I can I can get help? Mm-hmm. Calling a place that specializes in therapy and saying that. I believe that resources do exist. And, and that's a really good thing to know. And I think one thing to piggyback on that is now that there is so much being done with teletherapy, mm-hmm. that's opening doors that we didn't have. Carice Hill and I did a conversation back in March of last year and talking about how suddenly everything is accessible in ways yep. that they yeah. it hadn't right. been before. Exactly. Heather, do you have any suggestions or anything you would like to add before we wrap up? As Rick was saying, there are going to be therapy options on a sliding scale. I think it really is reaching out and 
you can find these resources, you can find therapy. And, you know, I've had many clients that have had their, you know, they ran out of insurance or they don't have insurance, they lost their job. So we provide services on a sliding scale, a very minimum copay, you know, or a very minimum fee for a session. So they are out there. It is, I think those were great suggestions. Rick has, you know, talking to your doctor, family services. There are great therapists out there that are not charging an arm and a leg for a 45-minute session. And I think the wonderful thing, my entire practice now is virtual. And obviously a year ago, this was kind of like, well, we didn't even think about it. It didn't even occur to us that we would be doing any virtual therapy. And then the pandemic hit and we switched over to entirely virtual therapy. So that has been a great asset for some of my clients, not only with health issues where they really struggled to get to the office, but also, you know, clients that don't have a car, they, you know, their one device is their phone with their video and we can do a session. I have access to people that I did not have access to before, people that don't have any transportation and people that live in other parts of Indiana that wouldn't be able to come to the office anyway. So I'm very hopeful that teletherapy, and I think with, with my organization, the organization where I work, we are going to continue having virtual therapy as an option because it really has given me access and people access to me and other therapists that may not have had access before. And it's been a real blessing. We're going to keep doing it. So I, I hope that that gives people another option is the fact that this is on the table now. Virtual therapy is a realistic possibility. Well, and it's good therapy. The difference between being in person and teletherapy is minor. And you can find help. No matter your physical limitation, your transportation limitation, your financial limitation, you can find help. Well, I think to follow up, we've spoken about so many things and I've been sitting here in my brain blogging away in my head. So I probably will reach out to both Heather and Rick again to get some things and sort of summarize some of what we talked about and really put it into my blog to share so people have a tangible resource. So I just want to say thank you. I know I described to somebody a while ago, the first time I really admitted to people that I was depressed. I literally remember like scratching my arms because I felt like I was ripping off the most painful bandaid and none of them really, I don't think, I don't think they truly believed it as much, or maybe they didn't realize just the level I was at, but they never brought it up again. No one ever asked how I was doing later. And again, I think, is it just that it's too uncomfortable to talk about? They don't know what to say about it or I'm not sure. But again, I think summarizing some resources and continuing this conversation is definitely going to be important to follow up because I think we can do lots more on this topic. So I will be doing that and gathering some information and sort of summarizing what we talked about today so that patients can sort of have a resource of where to go. Any final thoughts beyond that? It's You can get to the other side. You truly can. And when you do, life is better. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it is the strength that is not weakness. It's strength that brings you in to talk to an objective person that can really help you get to that other side. That is strength. That is not weakness. I think that is a profound thing that people don't understand. So I, right. I, I really, I love that you are saying that. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up right now and I will just add a little bit of housekeeping here. We are evolving our show because we have so many issues on the table. It's time we dive in and start to solve them. Now our main show will air just one time a month, the first Sunday of the month and the follow-up discussion that stems from the Sunday episode may happen on a variety of platforms. So we could do a follow-up mini-sode or, you know, if certain episodes run a little bit long, we can take small pieces and release a small mini-sode airing at a different day and time. We're going to have some information via YouTube, social media conversations, webinars, discussions inside our AI Arthritis Voices online community, and even possibly in person as the COVID restrictions lift, which originally our original plan for this is this show was going to be a touring show. And it could be global and around the world as we moved around to have discussions since we are a global organization. 
We feel that these changes really embrace more of our 360 concept, which aims to bring all voices from all demographics to the table to join the conversation, especially for those who don't do podcasts. Finally, based on what we talked about, I am going to personally follow up and blog about this and sort of summarize some of the things we've talked about. Also coming up with a list of online resources. Again, I'm in Pennsylvania. Rick and Heather, you're both in Indiana, but I think we can come up with a list of resources that can help people at least know where to start or who to ask for help. So I will be doing that. You can always message us at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. All have the at IFAI arthritis, or you can email us at podcast at AIarthritis.org. That includes all other stakeholders who should weigh in on this topic. So if you know any doctors, nurses, researchers, legislators who are dying to help add some information or add their points of view, please have them get in touch. You can find all of our episodes on our website at www.aiarthritis.org backslash talk show. And if you like the show and want to support our work, please consider giving a donation while you're there. I want to thank Heather and Rick for joining me today. If you have any websites or any place you would like people to check out your information, feel free to share now. I know, Rick, you have RA diabetes, which I always, if when I first saw it, I used to call it the rad, the rad diabetes. I always <laughs> added an extra. He's so rad. But would you like to share where people could reach out to you? Right. Uh, they can reach out to me at info at radiabetes.com. I also blog at two health union sites, ankylosingspondylitis.net and rheumatoidarthritis.net. And always glad to run into good folks. Excellent. And Heather, if people wish to contact you to find out more information, is there any way they could reach out to you? Gosh, I'm so lame, but I don't have all of these wonderful, cool connections. Well, you know what? How about this? How about people can reach out to myself or Rick and we can always touch base with you since we can do that. I think that's wonderful. Okay. That is great. So thank you for joining us and please be part of the continued conversation at AI Arthritis Voice voices.org or by sending a message because only together with all voices counted, can we solve the problems that matter most to you? Thank you so much to Heather and Rick for joining me. And I wish all of you listening a good day. This episode will air the first Sunday in April, which I believe the date is April 4th, Easter Sunday. It will be airing the episodes air around nine o'clock in the morning. So you can check it out then. And thank you again for joining us. Be well, everybody, and take care. Bye-bye. Bye. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events.